You can open your Bibles to Genesis 6. I thoroughly enjoy our weekly prophecy update series. It's just a blast. This past Sunday, I mentioned that Jesus said one of the signs of the end would be that men would be marrying and being given in marriage, comparing it to what he called the days of Noah. I want to expand on that a little bit tonight because it's always a very interesting area of Scripture. Commentators tend to interpret Jesus' words as meaning the human race will be going about its business like celebrating marriages when he returns, being unaware of his second coming. That, to me, as we're going through the book of Revelation, seems rather unlikely. From at least the midpoint of the tribulation on, the inhabitants of the earth will know that God is judging the world in preparation for the return of Jesus. Just prior to his return, conditions will in fact be so terrible that he said if he didn't return, the entire race would be destroyed. It would be the end of the human race. So to me, it's doubtful that people will be reading bridal magazines and hiring wedding coordinators and hosting receptions in the days leading up to the second coming. It's just not going to be life as usual, not at all. When you go back and read the account in Genesis that Jesus was referring to, you find out that in the days of Noah, a very specific type of marriage is described. And so there in Genesis 6, uh, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, it should be obvious from a first casual reading of those verses that the marriages taking place were unusual, to say the least. They were not the norm. Marriage between men and women had been going on for a long time. So when it says the sons of God took an interest in the daughters of men, it wasn't your average courtship that had been happening for a while. The unions between these two groups was producing an unusual offspring as well. And so there's several clues that something odd is taking place. The key to figuring out <clears throat> what was happening seems to be in our understanding of the phrase, the sons of God. There are three views of who the sons of God are among Bible commentators. The first view sees them as the godly human offspring of Seth, while the daughters of men were the ungodly offspring from the line of Cain, and their sin as that of mixed marriages between believers and non-believers. So that's one theory. The second view sees the sons of God as pagan kings and nobles like Lamech in chapter 4 of Genesis who take multiple wives in defiance of the structure of marriage given by God in the Garden of Eden. The third view identifies the sons of God as wicked fallen angels who had rebelled with Satan and who then sinned further by cohabiting with the daughters of men. These diabolical unions resulted in strange offspring, these giants who were the men of renown. Now, each of these views does have <clears throat> some scriptural evidence to support it, but I think the first two views are um, they're just faulty. For example, the view that the sons of God are the godly offspring of Seth 
fails from the get-go because by definition, they were not godly if they were marrying unbelievers. And so to say that, well, these are the believing godly offspring of Seth who then turn around and marry uh, unbelieving spouses, well, then they disqualify themselves. Besides, other than Noah and his family, there were no other righteous people on the earth or God would have saved them. And so that whole theory fails. And I think what commentators are doing, they don't want to admit that, that it's possible somehow for demons to uh, have been involved in this. They want to keep this very natural. And, and you'll find sometimes, um, well, you find a lot of times, we've talked about this before, when you talk about the gifts of the Spirit or the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a, a large branch of uh, evangelical Christianity is extremely conservative when it comes to supernatural issues and supernatural things. They deny miracles for today. They, they, um, they don't think there's any signs and wonders. They, they think God can still heal, but there is no gift of healing, those kinds of things. And so when they view the Old Testament, they have a tendency as well to shy away from things that seem a little bit fantastic. And quite honestly, uh, I think it's an overreaction to Pentecostalism because so often in Pentecostal circles, it just happens that people are talking about demons all the time. Everything is the fault of a demon, the devil made me do it, um, those kinds of things. And so evangelicals look at that and they say, hey, we, we don't want to give uh, any foothold or credibility to this idea that demons are that involved. Uh, and so they, they come up with these other theories uh, that on the surface you know, seem plausible until you think about it for a few minutes and then you think, well, these were not the godly offspring of Seth marrying just your average people. And then how do you get to the giants? Uh, how do you get to the what, what was happening in the DNA that produced these unusual offspring? So when you're trying to ferret something out in the Bible, you have to make all the details fit, not just a few. So <clears throat> the Seth theory is a bust. For myself, I, of course, lean towards the supernatural view that the sons of God are fallen angels because the Bible commenting on itself seems to support this view. Peter and Jude in their New Testament letters God's inspired commentators on the book of Genesis. Peter, in describing the days of Noah, says this in 2 Peter 2, 4, he says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then in 1 Peter 3, 19, he mentions again certain spirits that are in prison. Jude then provides this commentary in verse 6. He says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. In the next verse in Jude, there is a clue as to what these wicked angels did. They did something, Jude says, similar to what the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Those cities indulged themselves in gross sexual immorality going after strange flesh. Just so, Jude says, there were fallen angels who gave themselves to gross immorality by going after strange flesh. They abandoned their proper habitation and gave themselves over to a gross kind of sexual evil. And for that, God has incarcerated them in a special dungeon in, in what we would call Hades. Both Peter and Jude seem to be commenting on Bible history that their readers were familiar with. And in light of Genesis 6, the verses we just read, we believe they were commenting on the sin of the sons of God in the days just prior to the flood. And so if you put it all together, you see that uh, Peter and Jude seem to understand that the sons of God were especially wicked demons 
who were cohabiting with human women and creating this odd offspring. Fallen angels are called sons of God because God created them and they were not born. They lusted after human women. They took them in marriage. Their offspring were extraordinary men called giants. They're here called mighty men of old or men of renown. Dr. Henry Morris and others suggest that these fallen angels themselves, spirits, took possession of the bodies of human men as a habitation in order to marry women and corrupt the human race. The angels could have manipulated the genes in the bodies of their hosts, creating mutations and recombinations of characteristics to produce human offspring that were endowed with extraordinary features. Now we know from some of the accounts in the New Testament of demon possession that demons are able to affect the, the physicality of human beings in, at some level. Uh, uh, there's a, a notable failed exorcism in the book of Acts where the seven sons of Sceva, who seem to be familiar with demons and demonic possession, went around conducting exorcisms, tried to uh, do an exorcism on this fella, and he says, his, his famous line, he goes, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And he tore those guys up, one man against seven, and uh, they, they fled. Uh, Jesus, in the, uh, the, with the demoniac of Gadara, he encountered a guy that had apparently supernatural strength. And so it seems that when demons, in some cases, when they do possess individuals, uh, they give them Hulk-like strength, you know? That, and, and that you're able to do things that you're not normally able to do. And so we would conclude from that that if, if, you know, if they were possessing men um, and they were producing offspring, that they could be doing something at a cellular level. Uh, remember, the devil is a really smart guy uh, and knows a lot more about things than we do. And, and you know, it's, it's using human beings here as Petri dishes, uh, actually, to, to do some experimentation. Why? I mentioned it on Sunday, uh, in order to pollute the human race. Now, while you're considering all this, <clears throat> don't forget to note the phrase in verse 4, also afterward, there were such giants again, you read of them in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and in the book of Joshua. In the time of Joshua, when they take the land, uh, Caleb he says, hey, I want the land that was promised to me, the land where the Anakim live, which were a race of giants that were still on the earth at that time. And Caleb, uh, in his 80s, went after those guys and drove them out uh, and took his land, took his inheritance. Since everyone except Noah and his family were destroyed in the global flood, these post-flood giants would have to be produced by someone again cohabiting with the daughters of men after the judgment of the flood. So they didn't hide, they didn't survive as a race of giants. Uh, this is something that happened again. It just didn't happen on such a large scale and God uh, didn't uh, judge the entire world for it. So demons obviously survived the flood to again take up habitation in the bodies of men to again produce giants. <clears throat> I suggested on Sunday as have others that this was a satanic effort to corrupt the DNA of the human race. Satan was there in the Garden of Eden when God promised he would come as a savior, as the seed of the woman. So you remember right after Adam and Eve sinned, God came and he explained 
in, in really the first statement of, uh, of evangelical Christianity, uh, that he would come as the seed of a woman, uh, he would crush the serpent's head while his own heel was bruised. And as you see the unfolding drama of redemption, and we understand uh, what we understand now with the completed scripture, looking back, we know what he was talking about. He was talking about coming in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, so that he could defeat the devil at the cross. But it would cost him his human life, uh, and then he would be resurrected. And so uh, the devil knows that, and he figured if he could corrupt the, the DNA of the species, of the whole human race, then God's plan would be thwarted. God's plan would fail. And one of the things to look for when you're reading the Old Testament is satanic strategies to destroy the coming of Jesus into the world. When we get to Revelation 12, one of my favorite chapters, the one we do for Christmas every few years, you see the devil depicted there as a dragon, uh, a great red dragon seeking to devour the offspring of the pregnant woman. And it's a picture of Satan throughout the centuries, ever since that first promise in the Garden of Eden, wanting to destroy the human race or at least the, in a way that would corrupt the race or cut off the line of the Messiah so that God's promise would fail and God would providentially step in and take care of things, and that's what happens with the global flood. He finds Noah and his family, and he says, everyone else is gonna die because the human race has been corrupted, but I've, uh, I'm going to continue with Noah, and my promise will find fruition. And so, and in fact, God was talking to the serpent at the time in the garden. He was, that's what he was telling him, hey, this is what's gonna come down between you and I. We're gonna throw down, and, and you're gonna be defeated. If Satan could sufficiently corrupt human DNA, he could perhaps thwart God's plan to become human. And it seems it would have worked, but for Noah. But it, look what the text says about him. It says in verse eight, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a believer. This is the genealogy of Noah. He was a just man, uh, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We read that and we conclude Noah was a righteous man. He was a believer because it says he was just, we would say justified, uh, and that he walked with God. And so God sanctified him. So that's just like us. We're justified uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we walk with God as God perfects us. But when it says he was perfect in his generations, it's a hint that it might be a reference to his DNA, to his actual makeup, not being polluted as was the DNA of others. Uh, he was perfect in being able to regenerate these children without their DNA being corrupted. And so in the midst of these verses, God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. If the wickedness of mankind was due to an invasion of demons, how can God hold mankind responsible? If that's a question you had, we're gonna answer that right now. And the answer seems to be that mankind was familiar with these fallen angels and was choosing to consort with them. The text is careful to indicate that these unions were marriages. It says they took wives. They weren't going about raping innocent women against their will. The context seems to imply voluntary relationships with fallen angels or demon-possessed men. We have a lot of, uh, you know, 
notions about demons and what they look like and how they act and and you know we've whether you've ever seen Rosemary's Baby or not, you know, it's, it's part of our culture and the idea that the devil comes and rapes women. And, and so that's what we think of when, when I suggest that fallen angels came and cohabited with women, uh, that's what we get. But it, the text says they, they were married. These were voluntary unions between demons, uh, probably demon-possessed men, and uh, human women uh, who, who were not possessed by the demons. And if this seems weird, it's no weirder than what's happening today and in every generation when there is an explosion of interest in the occult and especially in contacting spirit beings, even with voluntary possession. There are a lot of people who, who want to be possessed by, by, of course, they don't call them demons, uh, but they, they allow themselves to be possessed. They seek possession. Uh, and, and um, you know, mediums, I mean, this is what that's all about, right? You go to these crazy seances and they channel uh, supposedly Aunt Flo or whoever you're looking for, but, but they're channeling demons. Uh, if, if there's any real truth to it, they're channeling demons. And so uh, people are involved with the occult all the time and, and <clears throat> desiring these things. And so it's not weird. Um, it's sad and it's odd, but it's not weird. And we may be on the verge of weirder things yet as men and women choose to consort with seducing spirits in the day and age in which we live. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When men do not retain God in their knowledge, they fall into progressively worse sin. You can read all about that in Romans chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 18 through about verse 32, just the downward spiral of human behavior and human society once you reject God. It takes a while because his image remains, um, but after a while, it's kind of an everything goes. And, and we see in our society today, I don't want to get into examples, but I think everybody that, that is paying attention uh, understands that there are a lot of grotesque, gross, uh, immoral things going on in our world today uh, that, that, you know, uh, there's almost no sense of shame even for the things that are going on. And um, so we're spiraling down. And that's, that's the kind of world that it was in the days of Noah, uh, so much so that Noah and his family, eight individuals in all, were the only people that uh, qualified as believers in order to be saved to carry on the human race. In verse five, uh, or verse six rather, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. In the King James Version, it says that it repented the Lord. It's an essential characteristic of God that he does not change or repent in the sense that we do. We change and then God deals differently with us. In order to describe this, we say that God changed his mind when we really mean that God is consistent with his nature and he changes his dealings with us based on our responses. God told Jonah, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them that they have 40 days and it's over. When they repented, he seems to have changed his mind by sparing them. But the change was consistent with God's nature. Jonah, in fact, knew that God would change if Nineveh responded with repentance, and that's the reason why he ran the other way. He wanted them to perish. You would think that this is a great example of, of what we're talking about because Jonah hated the Assyrians, 
and he wanted them destroyed. And when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach destruction to the Ninevites, you would think Jonah would have taken a jet airplane there, you know, if there was such a thing, that he would start running and get there any way he could with glee in his heart to announce this judgment because of his hatred of those people. Finally, they're going to be judged. But he does just the opposite because he knows as a prophet that if he preached judgment, there was a chance that they could repent and that God would relent and save them. And he didn't want any part of that. If God was going to judge them, let him judge them without any warning, without any message, because he didn't want to give them space to repent. God is described here as grieved in his heart. Grief is a love word. We only grieve for those we love. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and even strives with them because he loves them and seeks their repentance. I love the title of our series on Sunday mornings for Revelation, The Grace of Wrath, because it's so easy to lose the sense of God's grace as wormwood is falling upon the earth and as a third of the human race is destroyed and then another half of the human race and as all the waters are turned to blood and all these terrible things are happening and you concentrate on the judgment, um, you, you tend to lose the fact that it is gracious of God to go to great lengths to try to save individuals. You know, if, if you won't hear me in a day of grace, then I will reach out to you in a day of wrath and show you what is coming for all eternity if you don't repent and come to know me. And so God is grieved in his heart by these things. So verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Matthew Henry writes, None lose the Spirit's strivings, but those that have first forfeited them. God's love does not cancel out His holiness. If men resist, then He must respond in judgment, ultimately. One man responded to the strivings of God the Holy Spirit and was saved by grace. His impact was small. His testimony only affected seven other people in his own family. Which leads us to ask, how many people were there at the time of the flood? Uh, it's not that easy. It, well, actually, it's impossible to calculate. According to one source, the only definite numbers in the Bible concerning populations over a period of time is that 70 Israelites go into Egypt and four year, 400 years later, they come out as about 1.2 million people. However, if you run the math and use those factors and the, the time that man was on the earth, up to the flood, using those multipliers, the number of people on the earth prior to the flood would be nearly one trillion. And that seems unlikely. It's poss anything's possible because we just don't know, but it seems unlikely that there were one trillion people on the earth at the time of the flood. The mathematician who is getting into these things ran other scenarios and he came up with a minimum of 22,000 people up to a maximum of 1.2 million people. And so he's got some crazy ideas about how to calculate things. It's all very mathematical. <clears throat> I've heard numbers into the billions, and usually people don't give any reference for how they conclude that. 
because um, we just don't know. We don't know birth rates. We don't know anything about what was taking place. The only definite number is the children of Israel's multiplication in 400 years, and that seems to be uh, a little bit extreme. While we're talking numbers, let's go down a short rabbit trail since we're talking about Noah and the ark. It's commonly taught that Noah was building the ark for 120 years. The 120 years were the countdown to the flood itself. If you gather information about the ages of Noah and his children, you'll find, for example, that each son had to be old enough to be married before construction on the ark began. Based on the ages given for Noah and his sons in the text, Noah was well into the 120 years before the building of the ark actually began. After running those numbers, it seems that he was building the ark for about 55 to 70 years. Still a good long time of construction, but not the 120 years that we normally think. And so just to, just to be accurate and to win arguments with your friends, uh, you know, when people say Noah was building the ark for 120 years, that's not accurate. Uh, God said, from this point forward, there will be 120 years, and then I will destroy the human race. And then Noah... Uh, and his family came together at, up to a certain point, and then he began to build the ark for about 55 or 70 of those years, the last 55 or 70 of those years. Back now to our study. No one has the vaguest idea what the pre-flood population of the world was. No one knows. It's impossible to know. But whatever it was, I want to close with this. Noah, inspired by the Spirit, had little effect upon them over a period of several decades of preaching. Oh, we, we would guess that he was preaching for the 120 years because God said, this is, this is what I'm gonna do, this is what's gonna happen. Noah, you're the guy, and 120 years from now, there's gonna, and so at some point, Noah started telling people, hey, we've only got 120 years. Now we have 119 years. Now we have 118 years, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and as is sometimes the case in the Bible, I mean, the Bible does have big revivals. So we just talked about Nineveh, the whole city gets saved. It, it probably wasn't a huge city the size of Fresno, but it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. There were many thousands of people there. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, thousands were added to the church, and then a few days later, thousands more, and there was revival in Samaria. So the Bible's, you know, not against big numbers of people being saved. But oftentimes, when God is teaching us uh, about what it means to be a man or woman of God, we look at an individual like Jeremiah. Uh, he, he always comes to mind, the weeping prophet who had very little effect on his generation. Uh, there are lots of prophets God told, you're not going to have any effect on your generation. You're going to go minister to people, and they're not going to listen to you, but it's important that they hear you. And Noah is in that category. We don't know if there were 22,000 people or 1 trillion people on the earth at that time. Somewhere in between is the proper answer, I'm sure, but there were a lot of people. And the only people that went on the ark were Noah and his family. And so his preaching and his witness, being perfect in his generations, being a righteous man, being a just man, following God's will for his life, building the ark, uh, bearing up under the shame and the ridicule and all the things uh, that probably accompanied that since it had never rained before and, and, and people had never seen a boat like that before. Uh, he, had, he had almost zero effect 
uh, on his generation. But the effect he did have was profound. His family literally saved the human race from extinction. The effect you have on others may seem small. It may actually be small, but you should concentrate on being in the will of God, doing the works of God in the way he has prescribed and leave the effect to him. Amen?